This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Emron Meyer. Emron is a gastroenterologist, a neuroscientist, and the author of the new book, The Gut Immune Connection. At UCLA, he serves as the executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, and the co-director for the Digestive Diseases Research Center. Emron has spent over 40 years studying the interactions between the brain and the gut and the rest of the body. His research shows how the tiny microbes in our gut communicate with our brain and how an unbalanced communication system can give rise to a range of health issues. We talk about how chronic stress can impact gut health and how mood, diet, and immunity are closely linked. And Emron shares what we can do and eat for a more balanced system. So let's get to my chat with Emron Meyer. So this book is fascinating called The Gut Immune Connection. And I just wanted to back up a little bit to your first book, The Mind-Gut Connection, because this is really sort of a part two and kind of a deeper understanding into the gut-brain connection. And so I guess I wanted to start with how did you become an expert in this field? I feel like you're really one of the pioneer MDs who started to connect and talk about the, the, the gut-brain connection. You know, this has been something I've really, throughout my entire career, I've pursued this from the reason I chose gastroenterology as a specialty, because I realized in my initial exposure to patients as a student that patients with gastrointestinal problems have more, always have a psychological dimension to it that was totally neglected by the medical system at the time. I mean, this is like several decades ago now. And then once I became a gastroenterologist, it became obvious dealing with patients with so-called functional GI disorders, which are now called brain-gut disorders, that, that the brain must have a big impact on it. And Believe it or not, it's hard to imagine this today, that this was very controversial. This was rejected by the majority of my colleagues at meetings. You know, this was a fringe area. People always said, ah, this, this stuff is psychology. These are not real symptoms. And so I've continued to pursue this both in, in research and seeing patients and setting up, you know, an integrative clinic 20 years ago to deal with, with all aspects of the brain-gut axis. At the time, it was without the microbiome, but it was already, you know, I, I thought it could explain pretty much everything that I saw with my patients, this interaction, this bidirectional interaction. And then with the microbiome came on the scene, and these first experiments were published in, in, in mouse models. It 
you know, there was initial skepticism from my side, but once I, we did our own studies in, in human subjects, I got convinced that this is, uh, you know, an essential part of it. And in the meantime, it's obviously exploded. There's now so many self-declared uh, brain-gut experts without, you know, the long-standing research and clinical interest in it that it's now, to, today, it's, it's kind of hard to convince some people, well, we have been publishing and talking about this for years, for decades. What is the difference if you can articulate it for us, between the gut and the microbiome? Because now I think they're being kind of amalgamated into one thing for a lot of people, but they're, they're two different things. Yeah, they're two different things. And, and it's, it's really important because, so the difference is at the core of many of our chronic diseases. So the microbiome are the, all the microorganisms, the, you know, trillions, hundreds of trillions of microorganisms that live in our gut in increasing abundance from the small intestine into the large intestine. So these are the microbiota and the term microbiome also includes their genetic content. So hundreds of millions of genes, which gives them the ability to have a variety of functions and abilities to communicate with each other, but also to communicate with us. One characteristic, and this probably has to do with these they have evolved over 3.5 billion years. What they've done during that time is to perfect their communication skills and their language. And a lot of this information is stored in their genes. You know, they have multiples of our own so humans. We have 20,000 genes. You know, they have hundreds of millions of genes. Uh, so their repertoire, and most of this, we don't really know what these genes encode and what they do. But one thing it does, it gives them a great adaptability, the ability to adapt to new environmental conditions. And one of these conditions is our, the changes in our diet the last 75 years. Not only that, you know, we ended up with the standard American diet, which is is deficient in many things, particularly plant-based components, and is excessive in other things like sugar and additives and emulsifiers and chemicals and processed food. So they have adapted to this, also to toxins. It's amazing that microbes have the ability to process and break down, metabolize toxins from the environment. Also, you know, medications. Most medications or metabolized in the liver, but to a large degree also in our microbes. Now, this is very different from the gut. So the gut is what we used to think is just a, a tube that is concerned with digestion and breaking down the food and absorption. In the meantime, we know it's, it's one of the most complex organs that has its own nervous system, 150 million nerve cells, the enteric nervous system or the little brain of the gut. It also has the biggest part of our immune system. 70% of all immune cells are in the gut. Uh, it has the biggest part of our hormonal or endocrine system with hormones that regulate appetite um, and satiety and other you know, vital functions. So it's a very complex organ, but it's determined, its function is determined by the human genes, by this really small number. So the adaptability to new circumstances is much, much slower. It's been estimated it takes about 15 to 20,000 years before human or mammalian genes actually adapt to a new environment. So now you have a situation of a mismatch. The microbes have rapidly adapted to this new world of our, you know, sad diet and the gut not being able to, to match this adaptation and this mismatch is perceived by the gut as a major stress, a, a perturbation, which activates the immune system. Uh, so any you know, major stress engages the immune system. So at the core of what we see today with so many chronic illnesses being related to you know, inflammation or immune activation, at the core, this is this mismatch between our rapidly adapting microbiome and slowly adapting gut. Some people have said, if you wait another 15,000 years, you know, the gut, if you survive another 15,000 years and don't, you know, succumb to, to this chronic disease epidemic and pandemics, then our genes may have adapted to the diet. I, I hope it will not come to that. I hope it will come another way that we will change our diet and match it closer to what our guts actually have evolved uh, to, to process and interact with. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So when we eat something like heavily, something, something that is heavily laden with chemicals and very, very processed with a lot of emulsifiers, what does that actually do to the gut's function? So the gut is pretty sturdy. You know, it's amazing that it can handle that our bodies, some of these chemicals are absorbed to the pesticides. And, and, you know, keep in mind that many of these pesticides have never been really tested in, in proper human studies. They've been tested in a test tube. So take a few human cells, put the, the pesticide on it. And if nothing serious happens, then it's being given, you know, a yes for use in, in human applications. A, a lot of the chemicals are processed by the liver and then excreted. So they're neutralized by the liver. We know a lot less what the microbes do, for example, with glyphosate. You know, glyphosate has never really been tested in whole animals in terms of the damage. It's gone through the same short-term tests in, in test tubes with isolated cells and has not shown that it induces cancer, but this has never been done with the microbes in it. Some, t- some time ago, somebody came, I forgot the name, a fairly uh, wealthy individual who, who wanted to do studies or fund studies on microbial processing of glyphosate. And he said, this is a very risky area to get into because, you know, agricultural industrial complex will destroy your career if you if you get into this and and you and you will never be able to publish it i i don't know if that was exaggerated but it's definitely something you question why this hasn't been done you know mm-hmm. didn't the, the world health organization classify glyphosate as a probable carcinogen at some point yeah yeah it's, uh, but but it's not just a carcinogen you know i mean there's so many diseases we don't know that have increased in in the last i mean really the period is in the last 50 to 75 years i would say with industrial agriculture really taking off to for example you know autism spectrum disorders why has there been such a dramatic increase we we don't know there's certainly have to be environmental factors that play a role in this in addition to you know other factors that we know. But glyphosate is one of those compounds that con- potentially could play a role in this. Not the only role, but it's so it's it's so ubiquitous now and used in such quantities. In addition to, so this is an herbicide. So there's also the pesticides that we, you know, use extensively in, in, in increasing amounts. All this comes with with plant-based foods, unfortunately. You know, so when we talk about the, the health uh, the, the health of being on a largely plant-based diet, uh, you almost have to say if it's grown organically and is not exposed to these, these chemicals. But the, the microbes certainly have the machinery of breaking down many of these compounds into molecules that are then absorbable and that we don't know what they do in our body. So where does the inflammation response come in there? Yeah, so the inflammation response, it's it's in some ways it's kind of simple and it's almost like shown up in the in the lay um, media before it's really been accepted in the scientific world so it's obviously a response of the gut associated immune system and which is normally just microns away from the microbes that live in our gut it's separated by two things by a mucus layer so it's a, a thick layer of impenetrable it's made out of basically sugar or carbohydrate molecules that our gut produces. And then it's a second layer of cells of, of the gut lining, the epithelial cells, 
And this layer, this double layer is so tight normally that the microbes do not come in contact with the immune cells on the other side. But there are some, some cells, some immune cells that have little tentacles that stick into the mucus layer. And if, if, if the mucus layer gets thinned out or compromised, then all of a sudden the microbes come in contact with these sensors, these immune sensors, and now initiate a cascade of cytokine production by these dendritic cells. And then that gets involved other uh, lymphocytes, you know, in, in, in this immune layer. And these cytokines do two things. One is they compromise the tightness of the epithelial layer, this other component. And the other thing, it gets into the systemic circulation. And the third thing that happens when the cytokines compromise the epithelial layer, then all of a sudden intact microbes can slip through and get into the immune system and into the circulation. So all of a sudden now you have cell wall components of these microbes circulating in your blood. We know they can get into the brain, they can get to all the other organs, your liver, the heart, you know, all the, and, and it's sort of become like this ubiquitous mechanism that can, it doesn't fully explain all these diseases, you know, from colon cancer to heart attacks, from metabolic syndrome to Parkinson's, but it seems to be playing a major role of increasing your vulnerability if you have the right genetic background, that these vulnerabilities. So the interaction of our human, it's called vulnerability genes for many of these diseases, with that inflammation is sort of the, seems to be the common denominator for many of those diseases. The symptoms that present with, with that kind of leaky gut seem to be so ubiquitous, right? Fatigue, chronic fatigue. Yeah, so that, those would be the still the relatively benign symptoms before you come down with, you know, these uh, like, Parkinson's or, or, yeah. or, or Alzheimer's. Yeah, the autoimmune story, I'll, I'll just come, to, come back to this in, in, in a second, is slightly different. But one thing is also a dangerous thing that just like high blood pressure, the early phases of that immune activation are not, do not produce symptoms or not serious symptoms. So people don't even know if they have it. You know, I always say when I give a, a lecture to an audience that, you know, 40% in that audience have that that leaky gut condition without even knowing it. And that's sort of the dangerous thing that we, you know, let this sort of fester until we have the serious. So that's when the medical system comes in, you know, to diagnose and treat the serious diseases, but not for some of these conditions, you know, like in Parkinson's, it starts 15 years earlier. You know, mm -hmm. the first changes in the gut you see 15 years earlier. Coming back to the autoimmune um, category of diseases that's somewhat different that has a lot to do with the early training of our immune system in the gut to differentiate between good and bad and that has been happening you know because we have been removed early on in life from exposure to a, a wide variety of of microbes from the soil from pet animals from farm animals the more we have moved into cities with increasing hygiene, the medical system, the whole delivery process is become a sterile situation where the mom gets an antibiotic as a prevention for developing a, a streptococcal complication of delivery. If this child is a prematurely born baby, even worse, because then it's going to end up in the uh, neonatal ICU and is pumped up with antibiotics. During the phase where we should be developing a teaching our immune system to to be smart and and really differentiate between something that's our that's good for us in the diet and that's bad for us and yeah so I mean I always uh, you know mention this example when I went to medical school peanut allergies were unknown you know there, there's there's always been the shellfish allergies as long as I can remember but many of these new allergies and food hypersensitivities have were not around you know. Um, a couple of decades ago. So I, I think it's also a hyperactivity of the immune system because it sort of evaluates what we put in the gut in a, in a wrong way. So two disturbances really that are different, but both involve the immune system. 
One is a, a learning disability, you could say that happens early in life. And the second one is this mismatch concept, you know, so the, I, I think people lump them together, but they're really fundamentally different uh, mechanisms. I, I should also mention antibiotics, you know, so forgot antibiotics, probably one of the main causes to, to interfere with that early teaching of the immune system, you know, the, about the good and bad microbes, because it definitely compromises our microbiome. And certainly in my generation, we were fed antibiotics all the time, you know, at, at a cold or, I mean, in my case, I, ha I had chronic strep throats as a kid until I got my tonsils out. So I, I can't even count the number of courses of antibiotics that I would have had as a kid. So what, how does one go about rebuilding? I know when we last spoke, there was sort of conflicting research about the efficacy of probiotics. And I wondered if anything has emerged in that, in this two-year period that has been illuminated for you around that or how we, how we can go about repairing the gut from multiple courses of antibiotics that we all have had. Yeah. So this, it hasn't been resolved, you know, and in my opinion, it won't be resolved because it would require large-scale randomized controlled trials, just like what the pharmaceutical industry has to do to get something FDA approved. But what we have to sort of keep in mind is fermented foods have been developed by humans uh, some 40,000 years ago, mm -hmm. mainly to preserve um, food, you know, not, not for taste or anything. And so this is long enough, a long enough time. We talked, as I said earlier, it takes about 15,000 years for human genes to adapt to new environments. So our genes had enough time, the genes in the gut, to adapt to this type of food and exposure. So I would say that fermented foods definitely have some kind of health benefit for, for us. If that, my recommendation always to people is to eat a large variety of naturally fermented foods, ranging from dairy to, it sort of depends if you're vegan, obviously you don't want to have the dairy products, to plant-based or fish-based fermented foods based on taste preferences. A good idea probably to rotate those um, different types of fermented foods so you get the largest exposure to these microorganisms. But again, there, there's no controlled studies. You know, the, the only natural experiment to that are countries in Asia, Korea, that were even newborns or, or infants get exposed to these fermented foods, mainly to kimchi, but also other countries, you know, in Asia with kombucha and, and uh, fermented foods are just an essential element. In, in the West, particularly in the US, fermented foods have sort of come into popularity fairly late and the consumption is still less than in most other countries of the world, you mm. know. Uh, so I would say, overall, my recommendation is it's, it's almost certainly beneficial to have a diet, a healthy diet, that is supplemented by naturally fermented foods. My judgment on individual supplements and pills with probiotics, I, I can't really t tell you this. If, if, you, if you hate the taste of fermented foods, then you may want to be on your preferred probiotic mix, you know, without saying that you need the evidence from a scientific study. And what about, I heard anecdotally that if you have issues with mold toxicity or candida yeast overgrowth or something like that, that fermented foods might not be as beneficial. Is there any truth to that? I don't think that there really has been, you know, rigorous scientific studies that have proven that. I mean, sugar, I, I mean, I mean, clearly one, you know, a big risk factor is antibiotic use. Or if you have a, a problem with a peristalsis or if your gut that it's not either, I mean, there's certain patterns that are, are compromised in patients with diseases. That, that's when we see in, in, a, in a clinical setting, yeast overgrowth in Canada. Patients with, you know, th that have given this diagnosis by the functional medicine doctor or some other non you know mainstream physician we don't usually see those patients in the clinic you know they which is an interesting phenomenon now that you know the medical system is kind of split into the functional doctors that that do very different things and have very different concepts than you know the mainstream medicine not not that i'm saying that it's a lot of things in functional medicine that i like the 
holistic view of the body and uh, you know that everything is connected and food is important some of the details as a scientist i would like to see the proof for that but yeah it's super interesting because as you say you know your your work really does since it's focusing on that access and access and it was considered you know fringe all those years ago and now in a way you're sort of also setting the path for functional medicine because you are talking about that access that connection the holistic connections of of the body which is really fascinating and yet you know you're a physician and professor at ucla etc so i always think it's really interesting to talk to you because everything that you are building these theories on are scientifically proven and yet the foundation was the sort of out there idea that that the mind and the gut were connected and until you revealed this network of nerves you know going back and forth and so i wanted to ask you you know if if somebody comes to see you do you start for you know do, where do you start do you start with the brain do you start with the gut do you find that there are shifts that people can make in diet or are there any modalities that you see help really helping to heal the gut and then there are psychological aspects that are positively impacted yeah so i mean i i've always practiced a very holistic approach to patients both in the evaluation which takes about an hour and i go through you know their physical symptoms their, their digestive symptoms i take almost everything that a patient says to me no matter how esoteric or outlandish it sounds as its face value and uh, try to understand where this might be coming from. I home into a lot into the psychosocial dimension. So I want to know what happened early on, early in life, both in terms of, you know, from, from the mode of delivery, uh, if they know from their mothers, uh, how the pregnancy went. So it, it goes way back, you know, to the almost a prenatal stage. And so certainly early life stress, very important factor, early life nutrition, use of antibiotics. And then, you know, gradually moving from these factors that I know from, you know, earlier part of my career and, and, and research that affect brain circuits, stress circuits, stress responsiveness, go down to the, to the gut and want to hear exactly what the symptoms are. And I pick up things along the line, you know, of an hour session. I, I do remember a patient who, who came with complaining of constipation, but I saw the patient had this unique movement of his, of his fingers, his thumb and, and the index finger, which is a hallmark of Parkinson's disease. And so, you know, came up with a diagnosis that he had the first stage earliest stage of, of Parkinson's disease, which was confirmed then by the neurologist. But then I want to see, you know, for me, it's not that important that somebody I mean, how many bowel movements, the consistency, there's an obsession really by the medical system, particularly in the, in, in, in the GI area, mm. really focus on these unique features of your bowel symptoms. Uh, that for me is not that, that relevant really, because it's just, uh, it's, it's a sort of symptomatic expression of, you know, what I know are the contractions and the secretions in, in, in somebody's intestine. And then I also get into the diet in quite some detail. Mm. Uh, right now, what has happened at UCLA, we've, uh, our division has established this wellness center where, you know, a, a dietitian comes um, into play and a, a wellness coach comes into play that asks questions about sleep and, you know, stress levels. So I, I still like to do this myself because it gives me a better feeling what, what, what this patient, what's out of balance. And so I would say 90% of my patients, I come up with the conclusion, there is a component in the mind. It's usually stress, trauma, or something quite commonly, you know, these early life experiences, and that most patients are kind of confused about their diet. Some are oblivious, really, how important the diet is, because they've never been asked by, by their physician, or they're totally confused. You know, they say, one day I read this, I've read this on the internet, is this good for me? The ubiquitous question always comes, what probiotics should I take? Should I take prebiotics? You know, so a big part is educational of this assessment. And then in terms of treatment, I, and I should emphasize, I mean, these are patients that come to me because they have read the mind-gut connection. <laughs> so 
uh, early on, it was always referrals by other doctors. Now people come with the book in their hand and say, you know, I want, I want to, I, I feel like I'm the patient so-and-so in your book and I want to talk about it. And so it's always a combination of treatments targeted at the brain and at the mind. If somebody has severe irritable bowel syndrome, with severe anxiety, significant depression, I will use a almost always a very low dose of what's called these tricyclic antidepressants, which don't have an antidepressant effect, but they seem to have, by unclear mechanisms, a stabilizing effect on the brain-gut axis. If somebody has clinical depression, major depressive episode, I do either start them on an, an antidepressant or refer them to a psychiatrist. And are SSRIs okay for the microbiome? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. There is an overlap of what microbes do. So they have a serotonin transport mechanism. So microbes can take up serotonin by a similar molecule as our brain cells have. And that molecule is blocked by SSRI. So we don't know yet what happens if you, if you block it on a chronic basis. So this is an open question. The science on this came out only recently. But, you know, I mean, I should emphasize, I, I don't do this on every patient. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a pills or for me, sort of not, not the main uh, treatment target. Then there's mind-based therapies. There's mindfulness-based stress reduction. I almost recommend this to all the patients. Um, and do you find that like, is that meditation? Is that breathing? What are those modalities? The, the simplest one that we find that we actually teach patients in the clinic when they see me, you know, I put my hand on their stomach and show them what abdominal breathing is. Abdominal breathing, I, I mean, this should be almost like a routine recommendation to every patient. It's easy to learn. And once you know how to do it, you can do it in the car, in the office, anywhere. For mindfulness-based stress reduction, obviously, there are now apps for companies like Headspace, but there's also courses, online uh, sessions. So this has all become more accessible. What happens to the nervous system when you do abdominal breathing? So what do you do? You generate a signal that's carried to your brain through the vagus nerve. So the diaphragm has innovation by the vagus nerve, our main homeostatic you know, nerve. And it sends signals to the brain that you're in a relaxed state. So you switch from your stress-related breathing pattern, which is shallow, superficial, frequent, to the steep into your abdomen. And that sends a signal through this nerve into the brain. And it, for the brain, it's, it's not compatible. So you can't do a stress and a relaxation pattern of breathing at the same time. You force the brain to adapt this uh, relaxation um, mm. signal as, as the main signal. And yeah, I would say it's the cheapest, simplest, and um, easiest to teach of all the techniques that I've, I've done it for most of my adult life. You've done it before exams or you know other <laughs> situations. But one last thing I was going to say, so there's also, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, which used to be a very difficult thing to access, was not reimbursed, there were not enough trained therapists. So there's now this emergence of new web-based modalities that are easy, user-friendly, and shorter. So with 10 sessions, you may be able to get the same benefit. So this is new in this field, so we can treat the mind aspect of the brain-gut axis much better, more effectively, and anybody, you don't, like you don't have to live in San Francisco and on the west side of LA to have access to these therapies. Then if you go down to the, to the gut, obviously <clears throat> the recommendations for the diet, my recommendation is a largely plant-based diet, not necessarily vegan or, or vegetarian, unless you have ethical, philosophical, religious reasons for that, with it, which I totally understand. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and respect. But from a purely health standpoint, there doesn't seem to be an advantage of being on a vegan diet as opposed to be on a largely plant-based, like, you know, traditional Mediterranean, Okinawan, Japanese, traditional Japanese, uh, even traditional Chinese diet, all of which are, were kind of similar in that respect, and all of which have been sort of compromised with modernization, westernization. Then if somebody, you know, with ingesting a lot of these vegetables and, and fruits. So some people have uh, reactions, which come primarily in terms of bloating or they, they just don't tolerate it well. Then I ask patients to start 
personalizing their diet. So that item that caused the symptoms, stay away from it for a few weeks, monitor your symptoms. If your symptoms are gone, this was the offending agent and then either bring it back in very small amounts or just eliminate it. And at the end, you will have, I'll have accomplished two things. One is the patient becomes more conscious of uh, what triggers their symptoms and B, they design their own personal personalized mm-hmm. diet. So they feel empowered, you know, that they, it's not something that I told them what mm-hmm. to do. They select their own diet. So this combination, I would say 70, 70% of patients will feel significant improvement on this combination of, of, of things for, for digestive problems. It's a different story. You know, I have seen after my book, a significant number of people with Parkinson's disease, early cognitive decline, metabolic syndrome. So the recommendations are similar, but the success rate is not as high as you would get with, you know, these classical brain-gut disorders like IBS or bloating or indigestion. What's interesting is, you know, when I hear you talk about it, it's the idea of you are empowering your patients with this kind of autonomy, right? They're able to tune in and pay attention to what different foods make them feel getting into their parasympathetic nervous system and then building on their well-being from that place and it it's always such a nice reminder to hear the simplicity right eat eat real food mostly plants not too much is that isn't that the quote like <laughs> Yeah, so really that quote, that statement from him is, 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 is perfect, really. And I often say, you know, if, if, if you weren't in a Western society, want to know the mechanisms and, you know, where we have the NIH putting lots of money into curing diseases and we could just say we know the answer to 70% of our chronic diseases. You know, if we put the, the money that's currently being spent on finding out the mechanisms and developing new medications, we, we could resolve this problem very quickly by putting it into, to, you know, shape the, the eating patterns of their, of their children from early on. And, but unfortunately, you know, we, we, we're doing the opposite in society. We're subsidizing the companies that make, that are really the offenders, you know, yeah. industrial agriculture get um, subsidies for, growing the foods that are that are bad for us you know and um, so there's a whole i mean this is something uh, you know that gets into a whole political uh, dimension you know mm-hmm. and a much larger dimension of than our own health it's simple what we know today based on what we know today how we could really quickly affect or improve our health but we're not doing it because there's huge lobbying efforts to push it in the opposite direction you know yeah and there's a lot of greenwashing so some of these companies that are subsidized to produce the wrong things then come up with advertisements so we're producing this healthy food you know for for your children feed in breakfast cereals or you know a whole range of other types of foods so the yeah yeah, i often think about this It, it gets you from the gut into into politics, really, yeah. <laughs> and, and into agriculture, you know, th- into this whole area of regenerative organic agriculture movement. And this is the, the, the kind of thing that I found writing these books and giving the talks is exciting for me that I can actually talk on these topics as well yeah. and educate people about it, Absolutely. not just what probiotic they should take, you know. Yes, and it's it's almost radical in a way to hear an MD of your stature talk about soil health and animal health and how, you know, holistic is not just us within our one organism, it's us as, you know, with animals and soil and, and the chemicals in our environment, et cetera. That was actually a really fascinating part of the book, you know, to, to, to hear you talk about the degree to which the soil is depleted, affects the animals, and then the quality of what we're ingesting and how it's this, you know, diminishing returns of, of nutrition and, and quality. I want to ask you, so obviously in this year of COVID, where everybody has been very focused on their immunity, probably now so more than ever, what was it like 
finishing this book during, you know, a time of COVID and really, I would imagine kind of, you know, trying to elucidate the, the, that, the impact of the immune system as it pertains to gut, you know, when, when it, when it comes to us being able to fight off different viruses. Yeah, no, this has been really interesting how, you know, world events have almost like overruled uh, the writing of this book and we had to change certain chapters as we went along. Very interesting process, how, how that happened. I would say a couple of things have happened. One is the realization, and the last word on this is not out yet because, you know, we don't know the whole science of, of, of COVID and the risk factors, but it it did affect the part, parts of the population that that have the highest prevalence of these chronic non-infectious diseases. So uh, lower socioeconomic background, people of color, and you can trace it back to the kind of nutrition that people have that they don't have the luxury to go to Whole Foods or other, you know, other markets that, that uh, pr uh, provide food grown with regenerative organic uh, agriculture. So that was one thing to see that link all of a sudden between who is at greatest risk with that same idea that a compromised gut health actually not only predisposes you to developing these chronic diseases, but also make you more vulnerable to the viral infection. And so there will be lots of studies on that topic to know exactly. But certainly one thing that we become more vulnerable to these diseases, and there will be more, unfortunately, I think the way we are, you know, producing our food, the farm animals, the, the fish farms, all this is all breeding grounds for the next pandemic, you know, and, and it, it will happen with almost certainty. So I think it's a good time to really understand what role gut health and, and uh, diet and immunity plays in as a risk factor for these diseases. The other thing that happened that, you know, added a chapter on, on time-restricted eating to the book, and that came about also because our interest during the pandemic it was fairly easy to do, to practice this in our family, ourselves, and, you know, we were pleasantly surprised, A, how feasible it is, and B, what the effect was on. So we didn't take our, you know, blood tests and, and, and measure hemoglobin A1C, or, but certainly on, 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 on our weight, you know, it had a fairly substantial and sustained effect without really trying that hard. You know, it just compressed in the time that you eat into this eight-hour period. And there's not... There's tons of animal studies that have shown how this affects the microbes and how the microbes interact with our, with our gut during the, the, the period without food in our gut. But there's not enough, again, just like many of these areas, not enough human-controlled clinical trials that would say, yeah, this is the ultimate uh, way of controlling you know, this, this food-related epidemic. But I would say... But, but, you, but anecdotally, you and your family felt better doing the intermittent fasting? Yeah, so we, we we felt better. We didn't do it. You know, there's these two types. Uh, one is intermittent fasting, where you actually have one or two days a week where you don't eat at all, or or or, or a week, you know, fasting or these religious fast meditation sessions. So we just did it compressing the time that we eat to eight hours a day. So, you know, having dinner at, at 7.30 and then not eating till noon the next day and having the first meal being primarily you know, plant-based protein and plant-based oils and fats and nuts and seeds. So you, you sort of maintain, I mean, you sort of put your body into a ketogenic state for 16 hours. Uh, which we know is, you know, has some benefits because you burn fat uh, as an energy source. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in a ketogenic diet, but if you combine this sort of time-restricted eating with your largely plant-based diet, you sort of have both, you have benefits of both of those strategies. And this is what I currently recommend, you know, as uh, the optimal way of um, maintaining your metabolic health. and. Yeah. Can I go back to, you talked about the link between IBS and anxiety. And in my life, I have, I have some people in my life who have those things. And I was wondering, is IBS, does, does anxiety cause IBS? Does IBS cause anxiety? What, and, and what is the best way to start treating IBS, you know, from a food perspective? Yeah, so I would say, you know, from many studies with brain imaging that we've done, so IBS is definitely a classical brain-gut disorder. We don't 
yet know yet what role the microbiome plays in it, but certainly a very, just very close link between those two organs. And it's important to realize it's a bi-directional link. It's a circular communication. So, you know, the brain talks to the gut and the gut shows different contractions and patterns create symptoms of cramps and bloating, which are then perceived by the brain again, increase anxiety and why do I have this pain? So it's this vicious cycle, you know, that just between communication of the brain and the gut. There's subsets of patients who are really worried they have a life, like have cancer, or, you know, they want to get an endoscopy. And, but then what you see is even if you do the endoscopy, they, the anxiety goes down for a certain amount of time, but it, then it comes back the same way because it's, it's programmed into their, into their stress, in, uh, into their warning system. So IBS patients have a hyper-responsive stress system. What that means is that the, the brain perceives signals from the outside world and uh, the inside world on a continual basis. And is that genetics, that sensitivity? It is partially genetic, but it's also, you know, early life experiences. So it's a typical combination of negative early life experiences, which could be diet related. You know, if, if that uh, infant has, is, is, is a colicky baby and experiences right. distress from the gut all the time, then, you know, it, it obviously affects the brain's warning system. There's something wrong in my body. But it's really important to say that virtually every IBS patient has that. I mean, there's, there's no pure gut isolated gut problem in, in, in IBS. In the majority of patients, it's also associated with a low-grade anxiety, which goes with that stress hyper-responsiveness. In a, a smaller subset, it actually develops into full-blown anxiety disorder, but that IBS is not an anxiety disorder. You know, it's, it's based on that system that is hyper-reactive and rings the alarm bells at times where it shouldn't. And it, so you know, how, how can you treat that? Similar kind of approach to what I told you earlier. So I wouldn't use an antidepressant. I try not to use a medication. I, I try to start with the, these mind-based strategies, you know, the breathing, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, if more severe cognitive behavioral therapy. And diet-wise also, I, I'm not a fan of these you know, every few years, a new diet comes along that uh, the medical system endorses. So right now we're on the low FODMAP diet. When I was trained, it was actually the high fiber diet that was recommended, kind of the opposite from what it is now. So I use that principle, as I told you earlier, to have the patient customize, personalize their own diet. Start so so in, in, an elimination diet that even encompasses grains or lectins, you know, because in a, norm, a normal elimination diet, you can still have those, right? But this is, so if, if you were trying to get to the bottom of it and you just went to, you know, cooked, cooked greens, no nightshades, no eggs, no grains of any kind for a while, then you could start adding things slowly back and seeing what was causing an issue. You could do that, or you could just say, I'm going to eliminate one, you know, like broccoli, if this gives you the most bloating, I mean, you pick one symptom. Um, that is the most bothersome and start with a, you know, a traditional Mediterranean diet. And, and then if you find that a particular vegetable or artichokes, you know, each of these have, have their own fiber molecules, you know, so depending on what microbes you have, they're specialized on metabolizing, breaking down different fiber molecules. Mm -hmm. So if you have a deprived diversity of your microbiome, you will probably have more side effects to a large variety. But the hope would be that you, that you nurture and fertilize your microbiome system to increase its diversity. So you have more organisms that can break down different types of fiber. But during the process, you know, some people will say, I, I just cannot, I, I get too many symptoms from this particular vegetable. So I would say just eliminate that vegetable and see what happens. For the majority of people, they will eliminate between one, possibly five at the maximum food components, but then they still have a very healthy diet, a diverse diet that's optimal for their gut microbial health and not have symptoms. What are some simple steps that people can take if they really want to focus on their immunity, really building up their immunity? Yeah, so, you know, one is, and we talked about this mechanism that you want to have, uh, if you look inside of your gut, you want to have this 
this barrier, this intestinal barrier as tight as possible. That's probably the best thing you can do for you. And how do we find out if that barrier is tight or not, or leaky? So there are, you know, there are tests nowadays, either blood tests, which are not routine tests. And there's also, you know, stool tests, some companies, you know, I would say I, I would not trust their results. Others are, you know, better in sort of giving you this indication so there are certain molecules that you can measure that uh, are a reflection of your of the leakiness of your gut and your you know immune system activation. This has not become mainstream medicine yet. I think it will sooner or later. And so you you you, you sort of have to rely on this that no matter what your baseline is, you know if you go on a diet like this, you will optimize that that system. So that's that's one thing. You want to minimize, you know, intake of unnecessary antibiotics, and this is more, I would say, for for children. When mothers are really worried about the severity of a cold, that they ask their, their primary care physician or pediatrician uh, if they can prescribe a an antibiotic, which should not be the case because most of those colds are viral and and won't even respond to. Mm. Another thing is there's a range of substances and, and food components, like, you know, turmeric is, is one classical uh, example, other anti-inflammatory uh, molecules. Uh, there's polyphenol containing, uh, you know, plants have this high polyphenol content, berries being on the top of that. What we know about these uh, polyphenols, they're also, they're food for the microbes, you know, they they cannot be absorbed in our small intestine, just like fiber. They go down into the small intestine. They do several positive things to our microbes. They, they nurture them. They suppress uh, unhealthy microbes. And then the microbes break them down into small molecules, just like the fiber, which are then absorbed and have anti-inflammatory effects. Mm -hmm. Breakdown of the fiber products, fiber components result in these short-chain fatty acids which is the best endogenous anti-inflammatory uh, anti molecule that, you know, that we have from, from our diet. So increasing these, I mean, many of them are part of herbal medicine, not by coincidence. And they, you know, they are claimed to have beneficial effects on, on all these chronic non-infectious diseases, most likely by improving gut health and gut immunity. And so... In addition, so there's the diet part, but we also know, you know, that the these top-down influences of your stress system can have a very similar effect on gut health as a bad diet. So chronic stress, like many people experience during the pandemic, will do very similar things. It will lead to a thinning of your mucus layer, to a leakier gut, to decrease in the abundance of healthy microbes. So the combination of a bad diet and chronic stress is obviously the worst. It's a double whammy. If you can work on those two aspects of your health, I think you do, you probably do the, the, the most for your improving your immunity. It sounds very simple. And, you know, particularly when you, when, when you realize how complicated the immune system is and how much we know about it, but this is like this basic realization now. It's almost like the string theory of chronic disease, you know, that we, we found some relatively simple explanation. Thanks for listening to my chat with Emron Meyer. For more from Emron, pick up a copy of his excellent new book, The Gut Immune Connection. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.